are listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy faculty member Eric Jansen will anchor the session. I'm here with Emily Lanetto from GrowthTO. Emily, good to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's always nice to have, I'm not going to say recent alumni, but <laughs> I always like to talk about degrees of separation, and I feel like your degrees of separation from the current group of students here at Ivy is so small that you're very relatable. So thanks for coming back. Yeah, no problem. It's always so weird and also great to come back and kind of see how things have changed. So thanks for having me. Have they changed? I would say, yeah, a little bit. Slightly different facilities. You know, the microwave wasn't where I thought it was going to be. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's interesting to see like the new faces, the new realm of Ivy sweaters from in the hallway. Of course, the swag yeah. has changed. The building has changed. Yeah, the swagger of the, the building. The swagger has changed. <laughs> That's yeah. good. So you're spending a lot of time uh, on growth TO and in the growth space. Um, I know I don't want to beat a dead horse, so we don't need to define like what is growth, but maybe d just describe a little bit the projects that you're working on related to growth TO right now. What is that organization all about? Yeah, so uh, growth TO actually was an organization that I started, I would say, out of my second job uh, out of school when I was coming in as the first growth person, first marketer, first female, um, as well as well someone outside of the core group at a startup, and was trying to come in and figure out how can I work with a team that's never worked with a growth team before, after coming out of a job where I was previously on a growth team that was pretty established at a company called Tilt. And Establishing Growth TO really came from kind of conversations like this, where connecting with people, I just wanted to figure out what did people know that I just didn't? Because you can't grow even as like a person if you're not exploring outside of that. And what started off as uh, a ridiculous short list of like 50 growth leaders in Toronto and in North America quickly turned into basically like a mutual event session amongst growth leaders, trying to figure out how can you not only grow the startups that you're in, but also your connections, your own learnings, uh, and connect with people that were going through the same things. So it started off informally with coffees, turned into about 200 members across Toronto. And now in the last year, we've scaled it from merging as well as growing our own community to now 2,500 members across North America. That is fantastic. So yeah. often a lot of uh, younger, not to say younger, but 20-something students that I'm interacting with, um, they don't know or are not familiar with the language of startups. So, you know, SDR, AE, customer success, growth, they don't really know what it is. So let's not go textbook definition, but like mm -hmm. what, what would someone who's graduating from Ivy do in a growth role? What is the actual work of a growth person. What's kind of funny to me is that like growth in a lot of ways is actually so similar to a lot of the stuff that we do in Ivy, at least like from an, from a perspective and foundational standpoint. Like what growth really is is you are sitting at the intersect of different departments. You're looking holistically at a company and trying to figure out what are the areas that you can make a big impact uh, on the company. So often growth will sit in between marketing, product, and sales. Sometimes we'll sit under one of those departments. But for the most part, 
why I say it's actually kind of similar to some of the stuff that we apply here is really what students can expect going into a role is you're going in, you're analyzing, you're analyzing the components that are in front of you. What are the resources that you have? What are the goals of that company or where you'd like to go? You're establishing constraints. You're putting in what measures for success you're going for and you're coming up with a plan. I often actually think about it a lot like how I used to approach IV exams where you can put in like 75 kids in a single section and you're going to get 75 different answers. And in a growth role, you're pushing your answer forward rather than just giving that uh, and hoping that someone chooses it. Cool. So say I'm a one man show or me and a partner are starting a business and I think I want to, we've got some sort of minimum viable product that we've put out there. Interesting traction. Maybe some people are interested. Uh, I've got some, a couple users how do I make the decision between investing in marketing roles or sales roles or growth roles? Like who, who should I be hiring at what stage? So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but I think a good way of always looking at it is, especially early on, you're looking for people who are multifaceted, who are able to really take a look at of the problems and of the product that you currently have, like what is the biggest area of impact that you have? Do you need more customers? So in this case, of the customers that you have early traction with, how many of them are staying? How many of them love the product? How many of them have you even spoken to? So before you even think about hiring new people, it's how many of your existing customers have you engaged with? How many of them are from your, let's say, pre-existing relationships versus ones that have organically or let's say outside of your network? have joined. Oftentimes, I think the mistake that early stage startups will do is they'll hire someone specifically to fill X role right at the beginning, assuming that the product uh, is at a certain point where you have product market fit, which is a little bit beyond having a minimum viable product. And what that means is instead of having something that just functions, so like a minimum, a minimum vi- viable product will basically be something that at least serves a purpose and you can do some basic testing on versus product market fit. So does that product actually fit with the audience that you're going after? When you find a base level of that, that's when I would always recommend starting to look for someone really focused on growth. Before that, you want to look for someone who is probably growth minded, but is able to do maybe some of those other siloed works. Hmm. So uh, you're saying beyond MVP, Mm-hmm. You found some initial product market fit. So um, you said earlier you're selling to people beyond your immediate network or referral. There are people organically starting to find your product. Yes. Is there, and I, this is so hard to, to overgeneralize, but if you <laughs> had to over-engineer it, could you give an idea of at what like revenue stage is that? Is this, do you see pre like seed stage companies hiring growth roles or is it typically after someone's done a raise where they're like wow now there are expectations to grow at a certain rate we need now we need to now hire a growth person I would say that you definitely have growth-minded leaders that come in at Seed. Uh, Those are people who are setting the foundation for that. So like, growth is really data-heavy. It's really centric on understanding the product, understanding the consumer, being able to have access to that information. Often at Seed stage, you want someone who's going to go in and actually set up all the infrastructure for that. They'll probably be the person who understands how to use it, but that's a slightly different skill set than going out and, let's say, hiring a growth coordinator, growth manager, who maybe become in to optimize a channel that's pre-existing. And I think that those types of hires tend to typically come in series A or maybe seed round. 
Yeah. So the the more specific growth hires happen at a later stage, but the yes. more broad hire could happen relatively early. Oh, absolutely. And I think there's never too early of a stage to have somebody who is growth minded coming in and setting that challenge, setting that foundation. Because if you get someone that's like that at the beginning, it's it's contagious. And you want every department to be thinking about that at all times. So you uh, you've talked about the role of a Swiss Army knife. So I'm not going to I'm not going to debate it, but let's have a discussion <laughs> around it because okay. There are, there's always a role for a Swiss army knife in the beginning. Uh, yes. There's this period of thrashing. You've got to get a bunch of things set up. You've got to, you're, you're learning. So someone that could do a bunch of different things is good. I've found that over time, the need for a multi-purpose person wanes, and then you need to get specific people in those roles. I haven't yet effectively transitioned a Swiss army knife into a more senior role that may be totally my own <laughs> fault so do you always need a swiss army knife are there stages where a swiss army knife is more valuable than other stages see i think that it's really dependent like i think there are some people who are really damn good at scaling a company from like series a to series b or from b to c and then there are people who come in in later stage and they really own in the development of a department or a silo and i think that I would say as someone who identifies probably as like a Swiss Army knife and has had success in trying to build out like teams and also train other people to develop other types of tools outside of what would be their knife, so their core skill set, I would say maybe at the beginning there's a little bit more freedom and like you are looking for people who maybe like to navigate the chaos and they use the fact that they're a Swiss Army knife to do that, those people will probably outgrow or be outgrown by the company at a certain point. Mm. The people that are able to like pull out those tools when needed, but still understand what their core purpose are, I think those ones become extremely strong leaders because they are able to deeply empathize with things outside of their scope, which sometimes might be necessary as the company really does go into the next phase of growth. So how would you identify, given that some people may not even know that they're a gro potential growth person, how would you as a company identify someone who might have that talent? They may not have labeled themselves as a growth person, <laughs> uh, but you might see you're looking to hire. How could you identify someone that has early signals that they would be successful in a growth role? Are there traits? I think that there are definitely like there's some easier to spot traits versus questions that I like to ask to kind of get down to it. The easier to spot ones are often entrepreneurial type people tend to be really good at growth. I love talking to failed entrepreneurs, to be honest, uh, when it comes to trying to figure out who would be good in that mindset, because they were able to make something from nothing. And even if it didn't succeed, that part's so hard and requires so much mental capacity and emotional strain that a lot of people that come in and have tools set up for them aren't used to. And it's deeply, like, it's so important to be able to not only empathize with that, but kind of get into the mindset of that. Because often with growth, you're not just optimizing channels or campaigns or tools that are there, but you're also building and you're challenging the, stat the status quo, which is actually very similar to early stage entrepreneurship. Other things that I think are really good signs when you're talking to someone is I'll often give them like a pretty simple question. Like, let's say this is like a silly example because I rarely am trying to solve this problem. But let's say you start a blog and we decide that we want to get, let's say, 100 subscribers in the next like 30 days, which is like 
maybe aggressive for some types of companies. I would ask, how would you do that? And most people would be able to give me some pretty basic answers off the top, but you keep drilling in. So let's say after they say the basic things being like, oh, I'm going to write a few posts and I'm going to promote them through paid or the kind of typical uh, song and dance there, you would come back and be like, okay, well, you got 15. Now what? And you keep doing that and you keep squeezing to see what happens when they're in a crunch and they have a deadline and they don't know how they're going to hit it and see if they ask questions, see how crafty they get and giving them those tasks or even sometimes asking, okay, like what company do you love and why do you love it? Why is it growing to you? Cool. Like what would you change about it? How could you make it better? And keep digging in on that because often it's not the first question that you ask that identifies whether or not someone is able to be scrappy and think through those problems. It's often like the fifth or sixth. And I also love when people just say they don't know and start to ask questions because that's a huge component of the job as well. When you're hiring someone in that role, is it do you ever assign them tasks like takeaway tasks or is it all interviews in the room? I've never personally assigned something like crazy. Like for the most part, I'll be like, come in prepared to like talk about X. Cause I like to think through like, if I was genuinely in a room with this person and we're trying to solve a problem, how are they going to do that? Uh, I love seeing people whiteboard out problems because I genuinely just want to know how does your mind work? Like, how are you going to contribute to an active conversation when a lot of us are probably going to be aligned on problems, but will vary based on our perspectives and vary based on what are the components that each one of us are going to carry out in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. I have, however, like gone through interview processes where I myself has put, have put together presentations or have done tasks. And one of the things that I, I would recommend if there is somebody who is interested in growth is like you're typically looking for somebody who will challenge the status quo or who is thinking slightly differently based on the information that's at hand. And often when I've seen with takeaway kind of projects or exams is they'll give you the same information they give a lot of people in a department. And it's kind of your job to sit there and be like, let's say if they're like, what channel would you double down on next quarter? Like, I dare you to say that you would try something new and explain why you would try that instead of doubling down or situations like that. I've personally done in the past. Cool. Can you think through just to root this in something uh, practical or tangible? So I think people have a decent idea of what growth is and the types of people that are successful at in those roles. Can you talk through some examples, some really good growth related examples that either you've been a part of or seen and they can be super famous and popular or maybe some under the radar things that people may not have heard of before? I'll start with like probably the most like famous examples of it just to kind of like root it. But Dropbox uh, and Airbnb are probably like on the top of the list in terms of amazing growth campaigns. The first one being Dropbox's referral program, arguably one of the first SaaS products to absolutely nail referral programs and the poor people that have tried to copy them since something sometimes it just doesn't work again they got me that was the (laughs) so that program was the sign up to get get a friend to sign up to get more space right yeah and what's brilliant about that is they didn't do it in a way where it felt transactional to the point where you didn't feel shady for getting a kickback for getting a friend on board most people probably didn't even know what 
storage was online at that time because a lot of people had external hard drives and Dropbox was trying to pitch for cloud storage. And they did it in a way that was so visual as well, where basically you'd hit their landing page, it would get you to sign up, and it showed basically this rocket ship that was trying to take off. And you were at X percentage when you first started, and you would gain, I guess, further traction as you started to invite people. And at each level, you'd get X amount of gigabytes for free. And that part was really great, but they also gave away in-kind rewards. So instead of focusing on monetary, they were focusing on the storage, the actual product that they were giving. And they were only giving more of their product to the people who actually helped grow their product, which is also pretty brilliant. So you ended up having hundreds of students referring other students who would care about it and wanted to max out how much storage they would have and get the same friend to do the same thing. And it resulted in a crazy amount of growth in a small period of time. You talked about the element of design there, the rocket ship launching. It just made me think of the cross-functional component of this role. So like they would have, in order for Dropbox to execute that campaign, like what you live in that like uh, a higher tech SaaS world now, what teams would be involved in a campaign like that? So I'm extremely biased and think design thinking should be put into absolutely everything because one of the most universal languages out there that doesn't need to be translated is design. And we talk about that with metrics, we talk about that with math and those types of situations, but really the first thing that people notice about any product is what does it look like? How does it feel? What does it make me feel? And those often don't come from reading and they don't come from someone explaining it. It will come from a gut instinct reaction. And that's all design thinking and can be controlled. I think with a program like Dropbox, there's like a brilliant article on first round on growth designers. Dropbox has a crazy team for that that I would highly recommend uh, reading for anybody who's interested in that space. But I would definitely think your design growth team would be in there. Typically on growth teams, you'll have a growth analyst, you'll have a growth uh, PM as well as growth marketer. And I think with that one, like it very clearly was like a team trying to figure out how can we communicate something which was the cloud and was not really easy to understand into something that was. And people love being able to fill out basically bars and they understand that a rocket ship needs to go up. Those are all basic things that we as humans already knew. And I think they did a really brilliant job at bringing that in. Cool. So that's big example that most would be familiar with. Can you think about some maybe lesser known good growth examples that you've either been a part of or heard of? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I talk about the Tilt one all the time, so I'll just like breeze through that one. And there's another one that I think is brilliant. But with Tilt, for instance, we were a payments app, easy way to send requests and split payments between friends. And we grew almost exclusively, uh, especially at the beginning, through colleges, college and university students. Started out in the States, and when we came to Canada, we realized that we couldn't grow in the same way, where we couldn't grow through frats and sororities, which we did in the States, and instead we really had to focus on how are we solving more frequent use cases with different audience types. So we went after student organizers, your heads of households, your friends that are always rallying you to go out or get dinner, your you know, type A, hold the group together type of friend. And that's way harder to target online than it is to be like frat member or uh, sorority member. And 
I think one of the things that we did brilliantly there was beyond our ambassador program, which basically productized referrals for us. But we launched send and request money, which was basically interact e-transfer using credit cards. So you get points too, which students loved. And the way that we did that one was we had this campaign where it was called Dave is the Worst. It personified the worst aspects of all of our friends without ousting any of them. So it would quickly talk about meet Dave. Dave is the worst. He never pays for his share of the internet, but he's always streaming. Make Dave pay. And a bunch of scenarios like that, which were not as sexy as the fun parties down in the States, but were actual use cases that help our product grow. So we were explaining what the product did in really relatable, very frequent use cases with students and really simple CTA, make Dave pay. So people would click that, they would look up Dave on send requests, so they would download and actually look up this fake person that we made, and he would pay them back, and it would be this instant cycle. It was brilliant in the sense because it didn't just get people to sign up for something, it actually got them to use the product. And then they would have money waiting for them, so naturally it would set off all the other triggers for them to set up their direct deposit, et cetera. And then if they didn't, the money would come back to us. So it ended up becoming also super cost-effective for us and ended up killing our actual in-app referral program. Ah, interesting. So Dave actually paid them. They got real dollars from going through the process of getting Dave to pay. Exactly. We also experimented with a button on that uh, that said publicly shame Dave instead of share. And uh, you'd be surprised by how many people will click a button just because of curiosity. Right. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. So if we got in the next level here, so you were part of the team when they were going live in the States, you had a bunch of learnings. They say, we're going to go to Canada. Great. We've got a Canadian woman on the team. She's going to help us out. She must know the Canadian market. You, what did that first meeting, like, how did you figure out to do that? Like what, what's the thinking process to figure out how to come up with that campaign? So I think like what was really awesome about Tilt was we had such an amazing country manager and such an amazing like there was a beginning team that was led by Sarah Stockdale, who's an amazing growth leader out in Toronto and was my very first like I think super strong mentor when I was in university and especially coming out now. She's an amazing person to look up and look up to. But I think they had this really interesting opportunity with Tilt where it actually, Tilt coming to Canada came from our country manager, Tim, who is now the GM at uh, Checkout 51. And uh, he messaged James, who was the CEO of Tilt, and said, hey, I'm looking to raise money for the ski trip, I believe, uh, that I'm going with my friends. When are you coming to Canada? And it turned into this large conversation about why aren't you guys here? Why don't we have anything like this? And he ended up spearheading that and he ended up starting to build out what was basically a test concept out here and ended up becoming the fastest growing arm of Tilt because of the natural frequency. like We weren't going after big parties that happen maybe once a month. We were going after everyday types of, uh, types of transactions, like paying someone back for coffee, spending dinner, spending a taxi, because at the time, Uber split wasn't a thing. Um, but I thought that was really great. But kind of being on that team, and when we actually had to, I think more interestingly enough, had to break off from some of the learnings that we had from the American team was, There came a moment in our growth where we kind of sat down as a Canadian team and realized that we weren't going to grow like our big brother did, basically. 
And it's an interesting moment where it's very similar to when you talk to your parents at one point when you're a little bit older and you realize they don't know everything (laughs) and it's awkward. And you have this like gut feeling that you need to say something and you need to disagree publicly or you need to pivot a little bit. And it takes a while. And that's exactly what happened with us. Like there's a while where we were doing things that we knew weren't going to hundred percent work because that's what we were told to do. And then it eventually broke off into like send a request money, for instance, was a feature that probably was never going to work in the States because of Venmo, but it was everything for our growth here. And that came from like well over a year of pushing from our team, getting feedback, dealing with our ambassadors, growing the channels that we knew like also helped with our other arms. So we had this strong pulse on who our customers were and what they wanted. And we led with that data. So if we were to try to do this like case style, so you say you joined the team. Yes. The team got allocated a budget for the launch, presumably. Like there's some sort of resources available. Don't know what they were. You've got a certain team. uh, That's that's set on making that successful. Sure. So the first meeting, like let's get... Let's get nitty gritty here. Did you you say like, okay, we're going to launch in Canada. The goal is to get X amount of Canadian users? I would say in in this test, probably, yeah. Uh, It was probably how many people are we going to get in order to prove that it's actually going to work here? And then of those people, like how many of them are going to be, let's say, like students or are they going to be outside of that? So... What we had is like we had a lot of mini tests that were going too. like we didn't know if we were going to be campus oriented like we were in the States. We didn't know what schools we didn't know, like, how do you deal with a campus school versus a city school? We started to do tests on should we double down on going into universities or should we start looking elsewhere? And we started that as well with like a better example, maybe like later on, once we proved out with students was we essentially tried to do ritual at one point using tilt, which I don't think that many people know that we tried because clearly it wasn't very successful. And we partnered actually with a lot of companies here in London, which is interesting, uh, including there was like a little yogurt shop down the street that I remember I used to troubleshoot for. Um, but, uh, basically we had X amount of money. We set a goal if we wanted to get X amount of vendors and we wanted to increase their sales by X. And those were all things that we're looking for. The big metric at the beginning was, can we actually get vendors on board? And we had, we set time limits on that. And that was really like, honestly, it's very similar to when you're first starting out that business and you're trying to do any proof of concept. You have a time limit, you have things that are non-negotiable and you're trying to prove a point. And so are you, the, the team is presumably all together in the same room and you're like, here's some Red Bull and some pizza, like let's just brainstorm <laughs> ideas. Like how do you come up with here are the things that we're going to test? Yeah. So that's actually like very similar to how we were at Tilt. Um, minus the Red Bull, it was like a lot of Soylent. It was gross. Um, but we'd actually sit in the small room in our loft style office and we only had one meeting room in Tilt Canada. And it's pretty funny when people think about that because of how big Tilt had grown and our office just like, we just didn't. (laughs) But uh, we would sit in this room probably more frequently than once a quarter because of how fast we were growing. And we would actually just like talk through everything. Everybody would sit down and we would brain dump absolutely everything that was going on, put everything out on sticky notes, on uh, basically anything to get out of our head. And then we would start to basically triage, like what are the things that 
our add-ons to stuff that we already do? What are big bets that we haven't tried? What are things that are very obviously duds? And we would start to go through that. And sometimes we would get into like task groups of like, here's a big bet. We're going to put a few people on this to try it. And other times we'd have people being like, oh, I know how to do X thing really, really fast. I'm going to take all these things. And you just run out of the room and you start doing it. And who uh, who moderated that? Like who controlled the crowd? A lot of times it would always be set. Like one person would probably sit down and be like, guys, we need to talk. <laughs> and that person would probably take the helm at the beginning. But it was really collaborative, honestly. In a lot of cases, one of the reasons why I loved being in a startup outside of school was I didn't feel like age was anything. My dad says this all the time, mainly because he's old, but he'll say age is just a number. And I didn't really believe it until being in an industry that is honestly like so driven and so like amazing for young minded people who are ready to speak their perspectives and really want to own that. And in all of those scenarios, they were super collaborative. Like it, obviously I'd probably start off as a newer ad being a little bit more quiet and just like coming in with my own like details and my own opinions on things that people had already put out. But six months in at that point, I'm like the one being like, Hey guys, I want you guys to come sit in a room with me. And that's honestly kind of some of the beauty that comes along with fast growing and sometimes hard problems. Cool. Cool. Those, yeah, those details are helpful. I just always try to envision like, okay, how, how did this actually, you, we came yeah. up with this idea for this great thing, but like what actually happened? There's like a surprising amount of lack of structure in a lot of these things because structure tends to bind a lot of growth. It tends to really bog down things. And we, as humans, I feel in a lot of times really try to put ourselves into little boxes. We like to organize. It's the reason why there's huge stores dedicated to just organization. And I think there's room for that. But in a lot of cases, like it's a lot more abstract trying to solve these growth problems is basically like trying to not just like put things together that have come in a box, but you're like gathering the materials and you are building these components and then you're figuring out what tools will put them together. Cool. So if there were someone that wanted to get started, where would I go? Do you have any really like amazing, could be for each of the tiers, beginner, intermediate, expert, places to go, people to meet, books to read, blogs to follow, whatever. Like, where would I even start? Yeah, uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, like Brian Belfour and Andrew Chen and their work with Reforge. Casey Winters is also a huge contributor to that. They're all amazing growth leaders, ex-Pinterest, ex-Uber, and ex-HubSpot. And I would definitely recommend following reforge.com. Their blog there is great. They also, if you are a young professional and your company will sponsor you, they do this amazing educational program. Uh, I've gone through it. I know a ton of leaders that have too. It's great. Other things that I would also recommend is... If you, let's say, want to practice being a growth leader and a lot of those things, like try your own little startup. Like, and I don't mean like legitimize yourself, incorporate and do all of it. It's like, hey, if you want to figure out how does a company sell merchandise, sell merchandise. Like if you want to figure out, oh, okay, how does someone grow an app? Like, why don't you throw something up on Envision and get your friends to go through it and figure out, oh, okay, like what did I do wrong? Or can I even mimic something that I use on an everyday basis. Those types of thoughts, thought exercises don't need to be started just because you have a job or just because you have a task. You can just do it. 
Yeah. That's why I gravitate often to those Amazon style businesses because uh, if you if you just want to test something out, because literally I'm looking at our water bottles in front of us, mm-hmm. you could say, all right, I'm, I'm going to start a water bottle company. Let's pick a way that I could differentiate. Maybe I have flashy colors and it keeps the water colder longer than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't, but I can say that. Um, let's go through sourcing it, positioning it, marketing it testing a bunch of channels like what you would learn from a water bottle company that maybe sells a hundred dollars in water bottles at the end of the day like that learning is just so amazing so you're you're saying just go do it 100 percent. like i think the learnings that you get from figuring out the questions that you don't immediately think about until you have to solve them like those are the ones that make for such stronger stories, a way better uh, learning experience as well. Like a good example with whether it's water bottles, whether I always use like the Shopify example of like start a Shopify store, drop ship stuff. Like it's an easy way of just like testing proof of concept or I was reading this and uh, I've spoken to Justin Mars before as the author of Traction. And one of the things that he always preaches is like if you want to figure out will people buy or will people believe in your product and i think you mentioned this a few times but will someone actually put their money where their mouth is if they say that your product is great is why don't you start a landing page for a product that doesn't exist yet and see if you can get signups for presale or can they put down like a base level order your own little kickstarter if you will it's always an easy example of something that you should be able to have in your toolbox and you should be able to know how to do that's awesome Last few here. Advice you'd give your, call it 20-year-old self. (laughs) Buck up and share your perspective earlier. Uh, Just because you don't see yourself as someone who can make the most, I would say, pristine model in Excel does not mean that you won't be able to make some of the best suggestions for them moving forward. Own your background and understand what are the things that you learned from some of the stuff that might seem weird to other people because it's going to be unique to you and that's going to craft the better parts of your story and probably always will. Like playing in a band, for example? Yes, 100%. Awesome. (laughs) Um, uh, Last thing I'll ask is, uh, since this goes out to a pretty big community, is there any way that the community can help you? What are you... What are you working on right now? What are you focused on? What are your priorities? And if there's anybody listening who might want to lend a hand, how can we help? Absolutely. So I think a lot of my focus right now is trying to figure out how I can really scale this community for GrowthTO, trying to connect more leaders with, honestly, like students and mentees and people who are trying to learn, create a stronger ment- like mentor network. Because I was really fortunate to find someone amazing out of the gate, and not everyone is. And not everyone is also like the type of person who wants to reach out or feels comfortable doing that. So would love to talk to anybody who's in the tech space, in the growth space, founder, uh, or anyone that's just interested in getting involved and who also is interested in scaling a community like this out in Toronto. Cool. And best way to find that is through the Growth TO website. Where do they find you online? Well, you can find me on, well, growthtoronto.com or on LinkedIn. You can find me under Emma Lonetto, and that's L-O-N-E-T-T-O, not E at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That's great. We could go on for a long time, and I think maybe in the future we will. It's There's a, probably a few opportunities to tackle some case studies of, like, if you and I were to whiteboard out, how would we tackle <laughs> starting an idea or a concept? That might make for a fun follow-up, but uh, we'll save that for another day. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you spending some time. Thanks so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, 
subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player, or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.